Hello and welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Jason and Pete from Squeaky Pedal. We're delighted today to be joined by Andrea Hetherington. She is an author and historian who has written the book British Widows of the First World War, The Forgotten Legion, which is published by Pen and Sword Books. And today we will be discussing the subject of war widows with Andrea. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. So if we sort of launch into kind of looking at the subject of, of widows of the First World War, how many widows were created by the this horrendous conflict, the First World War? Well, that's not as straightforward a question as you might think, because obviously it's difficult to provide an exact figure, as it varies over time, and it depends on which widows you include, as not all men would die immediately during the war. Some died years later uh, from the injuries they received. But between the outbreak of the war and March 1921, around 230,000 widows' pensions had been issued. But that figure doesn't necessarily correlate with the number of women widowed, which will undoubtedly be higher if you take a a more global view of it. So I would imagine that if you think about those that die of their wounds in the years after the war, you're probably a figure of around 250,000 is probably a decent estimate to work with. Crikey, and that's obviously in in the context of previous conflicts really with regards to britain those those losses really the impact on the the nation's population as a whole is pretty uh th- that's pretty catastrophic and unprecedented really isn't it yeah it is it certainly is yes a lot of the the wars that had been fought previously were well firstly very distant from Britain, and secondly, much smaller conflicts. For example, the Second Boer War started in 1899. I think there were around 22,000 British deaths in that conflict. So yes, it's it's a much bigger figure. And of course, it's only in the First World War that widows actually start to get pensions when their husbands are killed. Before that, you have to remember, soldiers themselves historically were not well thought of generally. The respect that we have for the, the military in, in our society, the kind of fundraising, the the, the events that, that are held, Armed Forces Day, all that kind of thing, that's not the picture historically, generally, the British Army. Soldiers themselves are not well regarded. So the families, the women associated with them, similarly had a, a fairly low reputation. So traditionally, there was no financial provision for war widows. Um, but as I say, the Boer Wars started to change that, the second in particular, because a lot of volunteers joined up to take part in that war. There was a big drive from charities and the newspapers to support widows. So eventually the state did provide pensions, but only to a certain proportion. The criteria was that you had to be what's known in the army as on the strength. Now, what that means is that you have been married with the permission of the army and you're therefore considered to be almost sort of an adjunct to the army, but only a set proportion of the regiment will be allowed to be married in that way. Um, For example, of those 22,000 British deaths in the Second Boer War, of course, a lot of those men will have been married, but there was only around 3,000 women received pensions because they were the ones that were on the strength. Anybody else got nothing and had to rely on charity. But charity is always administered with those Victorian notions of self-help as the ideal and these these notions of the, the deserving and the undeserving poor. So the state didn't pay for, for anything until, as I say, the Second Boer War, but then only to a very limited number. But obviously those are completely unsuitable arrangements if you're suddenly looking to recruit a million men to the army in a very short space of time, which was the situation we were in. 
at the outbreak of the First World War because Britain's standing army was very small. After about a week of the war, it didn't occur to them initially, but after a week of the war, it's announced that all wives can have what's called separation allowance, which is a payment from the government made up of government money plus some allotment from their husband's pay as, as an allowance to keep them whilst their husbands are serving and war widows' pensions. Now, this comes as somewhat unwelcome news to the army because nobody told them that this was going to happen. And this principle of only helping women who were on the strength was so ingrained that this really took them by surprise. They weren't ready for this massive change. So the payments of separation allowance initially, obviously, were often really chaotic. And an indication of the size of the change the army had to cope with is that before the war, only 1,100 women were claiming separation allowance as wives of serving soldiers. And by November 1914, that figure goes up to 500,000 women. So it's a huge increase, obviously. So these payments are not um, means tested and they're paid direct to the wife or widow via the post office. But if we look at the figures on widows' pensions, the amounts are not generous. At the start of the war, a private's widow receives only five shillings a week on his death. That's the same figure that was being paid 15 years earlier in the Second Boer War. It's the equivalent of about £15 now. The amount depends on a man's rank. It doesn't depend on money that he earned before he went into the army. So, for example, the wife of a colonel would get around £200 a year. That's in the money then is probably worth about £12,000 now, so not huge, but enough. And a private's widow would be expected to survive on £13 a year. That's about £800 in today's purchasing power. With my great-grandmother, for example, when my great-grandfather was killed, she got 22 shillings and sixpence because he was only a private. And that was made up of a widow's pension and children's allowances. And that was to support her and her four children and that's the equivalent of about £66 a week. We've sort of explored this a number of times before, really, where this kind of, like you say, the enforced change in attitudes towards soldiers, because this is a citizen army for the first time. You know, it's not that small number of professional soldiers where people decide to go off and, and join the army because they want some adventure. You know, you've got people from across all echelons of society, really, for the first time, haven't you, coming together who might not have probably joined the army if it hadn't been for this crisis. Oh, well, definitely. And then, of course, you have conscription. So later on in the war, so people are, don't have any choice now. They're, they're forced to, to go into the army. So, yeah, it's a massive, massive change. And and thinking about what actually happens when a loved one is is killed on the battlefield, how were the families notified of their loved one's deaths at the front? OK, well, again, this depended on whether you were an officer or an ordinary soldier. The official notification for most soldiers comes in the form of a letter, not a telegram. Officers get telegrams. Ordinary soldiers' families get letters from the war office telling the family that the person has died. But a lot of families already knew before that notification arrived because soldiers would often enter into pacts with their immediate comrades with an agreement to let their loved ones know if anything happened to them. Commanding officers would also sometimes write, and sometimes if a man had been wounded and spent some time in hospital, the nurses who were looking after him would write to the family um, on his behalf. I have to say, the Postal Service, I think, was a lot more efficient than it is now. So the um, the official letter sometimes could be the second or even the third form of notification that a, a woman or a family would get 
that their loved one was actually dead. And the official notification would, would give no details at all, very bland, you know, a couple of lines, and it would leave many women clinging to the hope that it could be a mistake, that their husband could still be alive somewhere, either wounded or, or a prisoner of war somewhere. So a, a lot of women then went on to try and dig deeper and find out more about what had gone on by writing to the commanding officer, to the to anybody that they, they knew was serving with the unit sometimes even putting adverts in, in the newspaper in the case of, of men that had been reported missing as asking those that were perhaps wounded or home on leave who may know what, what happened to, to get in touch. It's not a letter or a telegram that anyone wants to receive. So what was the kind of impact for, you know, again, as you mentioned, there's kind of sheer numbers of those letters that went out. What was the kind of impact and the challenges that were faced by those kind of widows you know when that when that happened obviously we you know you kind of spoke a little bit there about the kind of financial impact and the fact that they could then hopefully end up with uh, war pension from the army but what were kind of the other challenges that that you know obviously that has a massive impact on the kind of family as a whole doesn't it well widows obviously faced a lot of challenges on the death of a husband obviously emotionally the first thing it's a very difficult thing to deal with and it was made worse by the fact that none of the normal mourning rituals that women would have been used to that provide closure and comfort were available for those whose husband died abroad. There's no funeral, there's no headstone, and again, if he died abroad, there's no body. The body's going to remain where it fell. And the decision to leave British soldiers' bodies abroad was controversial. There was a movement to bring all of the bodies back. So if you look at The Unknown Warrior, which is obviously the, the main subject of, of your, your podcast, that whole procedure didn't exactly help to dampen down that, that criticism. If you could bring one body home, why couldn't they all come back? The British War Graves Association had been founded in 1919 and that campaign for the return of all of the casualties to British soil. But of course, it, it was, was never going to happen. But I think those things kind of added to the, the difficulties of processing that loss. And widows were under pressure to deal with their grief in an acceptable way. There's a drive to avoid mourning dress which was a big part of, of the culture widows wearing black for a certain period of time etc there was a drive not to, to have that so not to have the streets full of women in black those who mourned too loud and too long were seen as being excessive and over dramatic but those who moved on straight away perhaps forming new relationships were, were seen as callous and cynical so it was a, a tricky tightrope to walk but as you say the financial impact was huge Separation allowance, which, which we've, we've mentioned, was actually more than a widow's pension. Now, even separation allowance itself wasn't overly generous, and it was calculated quite meanly and deliberately taken into account was the fact that a wife would no longer have to budget for food for her husband. So the payment of separation allowance was lower than the, the amount the family as a whole would have been living on whilst the man was a civilian. Now, once he died, to say they were calculated to be even less. The reason for that is that the underlying ideology was that once a man was dead, a woman was no longer expected to maintain the standards that he would expect to come home to, and she could downsize her household accordingly. Now, when my great-grandfather was killed in 1915, my great-grandmother was living in a two-room miners' cottage with four children. So it's very tricky to see how she could downsize any further. Of course, this is pre-welfare state, which is important for people to remember because that money, that was it. None of the other benefits that we're familiar with, housing benefit, family allowance, etc., were payable. So this widow's pension, that was all there was to survive on and it had to pay for everything. And not every war widow did receive a pension. 
Some couldn't prove their entitlement because you had to prove that you were entitled to this payment. Even if you'd already been receiving separation allowance, you still had to, on the death of your husband, you still had to apply for the pension. It wasn't granted to you automatically. And you still had to provide proof that you were married to the soldier. So you still had to send your marriage certificate, the birth certificates of any children. That wasn't possible for, for some people. Uh, some were widowed in circumstances where the war office decided they wouldn't pay pensions. So suicides quite often didn't attract pensions. Those who were executed, the shot at dawn, it was a long time before they got pensions. And accidents, accidents whilst a man was uh, in uniform, sometimes were not paid. Some widows of men who died after the war and were, again, not able to prove that that death was a direct result of his war injuries, so received nothing. And if you were lucky enough to get a pension in the first place, if a widow was seen as being guilty of any kind of misconduct, drinking, not looking after her children, having a relationship with another man without marrying him, then that pension could be revoked. So how, how did women support themselves? Well, as we know, a lot of women worked on the home front during the war, munitions factories, other jobs that weren't available pre-war. And this included, obviously, war widows. But of course, a lot of this employment was only available during the war. Munitions factories, obviously, are only needed in wartime. But even women doing more routine, usual jobs found themselves unemployed after the armistice, especially in, in favour of returning veterans. Some widows did manage to get work in their own homes, providing laundry services to their neighbours or making small articles for an employer being paid at piecework rates. There's an effect on children as well uh, of this, this financial hole because children often had to chip in and make their contribution to the family income. Younger children with paper rounds, milk rounds, weekend jobs and sometimes children left school altogether at a very early age in order to make a contribution to, to help the family survive. Now, as early as 1915, it was reported that there were 45,000 fewer children in school than the population figures suggested should be the case. And a lot of those children had left to get jobs to try and support the family. So many children had their lives changed forever by the death of their soldier fathers because they're not going to go back into to education. I've found stories of people being forced to give up scholarships that they they'd got to local grammar schools etc and go out and, and get jobs there's disapproval of, of widows with children working despite their financial need and some local war pensions committees who are responsible for administering pensions actually said the widows had to get permission from them before they took jobs nursery provision which a lot of people take for granted today, is virtually non-existent. So it's very difficult to work and look after young children at the same time. And if a widow applied to charity to assist her, many organisations would suggest that she put her children in the workhouse so that she could go out and earn a living for herself. So it's really an incredibly difficult thing to, to try and get over. It's a really stark reality to be faced with, really. You know, you've, we've kind of covered the, you know, the creation of this national monument and and the way that the soldiers that were left in France at Saint Paul were kind of very carefully exhuming uh, and marking the bodies that they found as carefully uh, and with as much dignity as possible, and that these obviously become great pilgrimage grounds for people to go. But it's the people that are left behind by the war. It's the the women and the children of of these servicemen that are left behind that are almost kind of forgotten in that narrative. Really, you know, there's there's the focus on the loss, obviously, and the the pride of the what the what their husbands have done in the war, which is important. But at the same time, there's just though you know, speaking to you and hearing about those those stories, it is kind of the it is the forgotten part of the war, isn't it? Really, what's happening at home? 
it, it is absolutely, and and the, the the full title of the, my book sort of reflects that. It's British with us, the First World War, the Forgotten Legion. We've heard a lot during the centenary period about, oh, this is an untold story of, of the First World War, and and you look at this stuff and you think, well, it's not really. But as you say, I think the impact of fam on families back home, that, that really has been one of the very neglected areas. Uh, and I think my book's really the, the first proper study uh, of British British widows of the First World War. Uh, and it was really a, a fascinating and a quite depressing piece of, of research. But what was also quite interesting, I found, is that a lot of the attitudes that you came across, you still come across today. So this attitude of if the state is paying you a benefit, then you need to spend that on certain things and, and live in a certain way is something that we still see now, unfortunately, in relation to, to benefits claimants. So, for example, I've seen criticism of uh, of people on benefits now as well. They've got Sky TV. They've got a Sky TV dish. How can they, you know, why do they need benefits? A hundred years ago, women were being criticised. I had a story in a newspaper, a woman being criticised for buying a gramophone with some of her pension. You know, these attitudes don't change um, in, in some, some respects. So it, it, it's quite interesting in, in that regard. You know, your, your husband's just died, basically. Right, OK, downsize your house. You send your kid to the workhouse. Don't show any grief. Uh, you know, just keep it to yourself. But don't get another husband or anything like that. We don't want any of that. They were quite happy for them to get other husbands because once you got remarried, your pension stopped. So they were quite happy for women to go out and get married. <laughs> they yeah. granted them a lump sum, depending on what stage of the war it was. It was either a year's pension or two years pension if you remarried, because obviously that was preferable. They wanted that. It was preferable to having to look after you potentially for the rest of, of your life and, and do that administration. So around 40% of war widows did remarry. But against that financial background, it, it's really not, not surprising at all. Some widows, unfortunately, lost their pensions on remarriage and were then deserted by their, their new husbands. Obviously, we're in an even worse position. And I did find a little group of swindlers who would go around and marry war widows deliberately to get their hands on this lump sum. And once they'd drunk their way through that or got the lump sum from the woman straight away, they'd then disappear and sometimes go off and, and marry another war widow. And actually that led into the interest and the research for, for my, my new book that's coming out because a lot of those men... Those swindlers turned out to be deserters from the army who were trying to find another way of surviving once their army pay was cut off. But that's that's a whole other story. I mean, it's very interesting that you were saying kind of the rules around mourning. You know, they, they want you to be respectful, obviously, for the fact you've lost your husband, but not too uh, overt with your mourning, because obviously there's kind of the morale impact there of, of kind of, you know, that's the reality of, of all these men being killed. So how did the loss of their husband impact their own views on the war? Well, they're not homogenous not a homogenous group, widows, obviously. So attitudes toward, towards the war always was differed. Some women undoubtedly took pride in the fact their husbands had made the ultimate sacrifice, wearing his medals when they were issued at ceremonial events, sometimes getting involved in organisations like the British Legion. And they also felt that they had some kind of elevated status as a war widow. Of course, it's only war widows that are getting pensions at this stage. Ordinary widows do not. Now, interestingly, many, many years later, the Department of Health and Social Security, as it, as it was then, changed some of the, the paperwork that war widows got to go to the, the post office and get, get stamped to get their money. And they removed the war part from the, the war widows' paperwork. And there was a big protest from war widows about that because they, they felt that that was something that, that elevated them and rose, rose them above the ordinary widow and, and they wanted the fact that they were a war widow 
to remain on this this piece of paper that they just took to the post office. So a lot of women did take pride in the fact they were war widows. But some women, of course, have a very different view. As we already touched on, after conscription, men have got no choice whether they go into the army or not. So some have certainly been forced in there unwillingly and, and their families would have had no interest in them joining the army, but for the fact that they were forced. Uh, and I've come across a lot of women who were very bitter, understandably, about, about the loss of their husbands. I've come across women, for example, who didn't want their husband's name inscribing on local war memorials when the, the call went out for people to provide those details. And as I say, many were very bitter at the loss of their husbands in the service of the state, especially when the state was not making adequate recompense for that. And one widow that I found in Todmorden uh, wrote to a local newspaper in protest at the treatment families received. And she, she gave them quite a good quote when she said, Husbands and fathers have died for the state, but the state will be a long time before it is as good a husband and father as the one I have known. Uh, that's quite a kind of poignant little little remark, I think. That's, that, that really is. This yeah you couldn't really put it better the the kind of that's the impact isn't it really and and the failing of the state to yeah support these people that they've just sent off to die in in large numbers really and thinking about organizations that that could support widows in this unprecedented situation were there any organizations that popped up that could provide support you know financially or or or, or, or any other kind of support to, to help well, in terms of whether were there organisations that widows could belong to, the answers are simple, no. War widows were not organised into any kind of representative body in, until 1971. There were a couple of smaller local organisations of war widows immediately following the war, but they don't seem to, to have lasted. The British Legion wasn't founded until 1921. Even then, in the original constitution, widows were not allowed to become ordinary members. So widows couldn't belong to any organisations that, that, that could kind of help themselves. But there were see, a range of charities that, that offered assistance. The Salvation Army for example. The Salvation Army did a lot of work with war widows. They established a network of widows counsellors around the country to help widows deal with any problems, to liaise with the pension authorities, etc. Uh, there was an organisation, still is, called the Soldiers and Sailors Family Association, but that really concentrated on helping the wives of living servicemen and not widows. And they'd been quite involved in the administration of, of allowances by the army. But their attitudes really at that stage were, were very much rooted in the notions of charity and the Victorian attitudes to charity. And, and there was a number of issues around that and that their, their reluctance to accept that women could have allowances as of right. No doubt around the country that they did do a lot of good work, but their official policy was that no financial assistance should be given to war widows because the government's money was quite adequate. Now, the last resort for war widows was poor law relief. In some areas, this meant that if a woman wanted any financial assistance, she or sometimes just her children, as I've touched on already, would have to go into, into the workhouse. So charity did, did absolutely boom during the First World War, and it was the first time that charities actually had to be regulated partly because of the, the number that were popping up for all kinds of things, you know, charities to buy 
milk for soldiers' tea, charities to provide chickens for soldiers to keep when they were discharged from the a massive range of things, some of which were completely fraudulent. So it was that that saw charity regulation be, be brought in for the first time. But the whole notion of applying to charity has brought with it a lot of negative connotations um, and certainly in relation to, to asking for help from the poor law, it was certainly at the very last resort for widows because, um, as a study after the war said, it was the feeling was it was given begrudgingly to start with and also involved a, a loss of self-respect and a loss of status to be applying to, to the poor law. Unfortunately, that's you, you do see that kind of mirrored, that attitude now, still, you know, still today, unfortunately, don't we? But um, thinking of those organisations and then thinking about what the widows could do again, sort of to try and, I don't know, kind of move on with their grief and kind of get some kind of closure. Like, was there any ever opportunity for them to go overseas? Was there any kind of organisation that could help them get overseas to maybe visit if their loved one had a grave to form some kind of closure for, on a personal level? The government directly never provided any assistance to widows. Again, charitable organisations provided what assistance there was in this area. And again, the Salvation Army did a lot of work. They ran what they called the Grave Visitation Service from 1920 to allow widows to visit battlefield cemeteries. They had a network of hostels in France and Belgium for women to stay in but for free. They did receive funding from the Army Council, for example, gave them £25,000 for, for this work. The Church Army and the YMCA did a similar thing for a while. The trips by them were, were usually subsidised rather than completely free, although if you really had no money, then you could get that for free. A New Zealand chaplain set up an organisation called the St Barnabas Pilgrimages, and that ran trips, including the largest party of bereaved relatives to visit the uh, the battlefields in 1927, which was for the unveiling of the Menengate Memorial to the Missing, and 700 relatives attended that free of charge from all over the country. But I think, really, it was just beyond the even imagining of, of many widows that that was something that they would be able to do. Going abroad, I mean, now we, we do it at the drop of a hat, unfortunately, for the state of our environment, but then it just was not not something that you would even contemplate. And the vast majority of people in this country, well, until the First World War when they were forced, would never have left this, this country during their lifetimes. So it's a massive thing for a woman to consider doing, especially if she's, she's got children. Some of these, these trips didn't, well, most of these trips didn't include children. So you've got to think about the childcare aspect as well. So for many women, even though there was some provision, it was just something that was just beyond them, really. And, and thinking about the unknown warrior, how were widows considered in the organisation of the congregation for the funeral service in Westminster Abbey to bury the unknown warrior? Well, initially they were not. They'd largely been ignored in the planning of the last major post-war event, which was Peace Day in July 1919, which involved a big parade in London, events all over the country. And they'd been ignored in that because the organising committee were of the view that they wouldn't be interested in attending because the bulk of them had remarried. Um, of course, this was not true. As I said, financial imperatives meant that around 40% of our First World War widows did eventually remarry. But of course, that, that doesn't mean that you, you start to just completely forget about the, the first husband. Though there was one armistice day between the two events, between Peace Day and the Unknown Warriors, November 1919. There was no official inclusion of widows on that day either. But that day was a little bit odd because I think there was a really just a, the government didn't really know whether people would want to do anything major that day so it was quite low-key was November 1919 
But the spontaneous adoption of the cenotaph really is a symbol for those mourning. A clamour from the press, uh, from individuals writing into MPs, the War Office, etc., uh, when it was it was decided that 1920 a bigger deal was going to be made of it, if I can put it that way, meant that widows were eventually included in the unknown warrior ceremonies. Now, bereaved mothers and widows were eventually invited to apply for tickets, taking seats at Westminster Abbey that had originally been designated for MPs, and also tickets for positions in government offices with windows that overlooked the route. There was a big debate about this amongst the MPs because originally it was all MPs that were going to get these these seats, and some of them were, were very unhappy at the fact that they were now potentially going to fall down the pecking order. For some, you can understand because some MPs, of course, had lost sons, some more than one son. And eventually around 200 MPs who had lost sons were still accommodated at Westminster Abbey. The rest of the the MPs tickets going to mothers and widows. Now, obviously, there's nowhere near enough tickets for these events for everyone who'd lost someone. I think the Times estimated that the number of relatives eligible for tickets might number two or three million. So a qualifying test's designed for you to apply for tickets with the kind of hierarchy of grief established. So women were able to apply for tickets if they were in one of the following categories. So category A was a woman who'd lost a husband and one or more sons. Category B was a mother who lost all of her sons or her only son. Category C was ordinary widows. So mothers arguably get a higher priority than the ordinary widow. Now, there's less than a week for the bereaved to apply after the announcement is made. And the ticket ballot itself doesn't take place until the 5th of November. And then you've got to allow time to be notified. So you've got a very short time period to to get yourself organised to attend if that's something you want to do. And that undoubtedly deterred a lot of women for applying because the number of applications they receive is nowhere near this two or three million figure. I think they only receive around 14,000 applications in total. 99 applications are from the first category woman who lost a husband and one or more sons. But we actually have no way of knowing how that ticket breakdown eventually worked out because the ticket itself was all you needed to to get into the ceremony. Of course, nowadays you'd have to provide 48 forms of identification and uh, and have it all all verified probably over Zoom. But in those days, you you don't have ID papers. That doesn't really happen, certainly not for for women at all. So the ticket was all you needed. And the organisers did understand some of the problems that would be caused by the late notification that you'd been successful. So they decided if you were lucky enough to have got a ticket but then couldn't go, that it was okay for you to pass that ticket on to to someone else. So, So we really don't know who eventually attended. Overall, kind of reaction was that the unknown warrior will help us kind of help the widows kind of get closure. And obviously, obviously, you mentioned this, they've got the ticket ballot. And then I think we've also mentioned on the podcast before about the crowds that lie in the streets and stuff. Did widows kind of travel from far and wide, as it were, as they couldn't, you know, like you say, they might not have the means or the or the want to go to go to the battlefields to kind of visit their relative, but they've got, you know, they've got something to kind of a pilgrimage to kind of make of their own accord. Well, it's difficult to say as there's much diversity of opinion and experience. So some will have will have been greatly affected by the unknown warrior ceremony. Some will have undoubtedly clung to the idea that the body was indeed that of their husband. And there were stories coming up that, that women had been to see uh, psychics and, and were being told, yes, it, that it's your husband, that that's, that's the person that has been brought back. Well, others would have realised that this was statistically very, very unlikely. I'm sure that you've, you've covered already in the podcast the arrangements for which kind of body was going to be brought back. So, you know, it certainly wasn't going to be a conscript, a post-1916 soldier. 
So statistically, it was very, very unlikely that that was going to be your husband. Clearly, some were lucky enough, as we said, to attend the ceremony itself, whilst, as you say, others may have been in the crowd. Of course, others were visited the tomb and the cenotaph in the week following the ceremony, when it's estimated, as you be aware, that a million people filed past the tomb at Westminster Abbey on the day itself and subsequent days that week. But again, we don't really travel then as we do now. Some will have spent that the monies expended on those ceremonials were a complete waste. And it was it was somewhat hypocritical to celebrate the unknown warrior whilst allowing his dependents potentially to, to be living in poverty. Uh, and this was an attitude that, that was displayed through letters to the papers, etc., of, of a number of other post-war events, particularly Peace Day. And for, for some, this will have had very little impact on their lives at all. Because you have to remember, we're talking about a period in history where the mass media as we know it today does not exist. There's no internet, there's no TV, there's no radio. And you have to question how a widow would engage with those ceremonials in the absence of these outlets. Newspapers, of course, carry coverage of events and they had much higher circulations than they do now, especially local newspapers. And of course, it was possible to go to the cinema and watch a, a newsreel. But again, these are activities and things that, that cost money. I think women were more likely to go to local ceremonies on the Day of the Unknown Warrior. Photographs show that these were certainly very well attended on Armistice Day 1920. So as, as I say, it, it's really interesting, but Widows are not, not leaving memoirs on the whole. Nobody's really interested in what they've got to, to say about things. So it's hard to say. And again, it, it's hard to see how you are, you are going to engage with that process, with those events in the days before, before mass communication. And especially for those widows whose loved one had no known grave. Um, yeah. Do you think that having that body being brought back to Britain, I know you say like say it's difficult to kind of look through and, and gain a full understanding because of the, you know, sometimes the lack of, of personal entries that you can reference, but do you think having that, that body brought back to, to Britain, the Unknown Warrior, create a focal point for, for widows to visit and grieve, not only for those who weren't perhaps able to get to the grave site of their relative that, that lay overseas, but especially for those whose husbands had no known grave as a, as a, as a focal point to, to pay their respects? I think it had to be very location specific. What I mean by that is it, it might well have provided a, a focal point for widows who lived in London and the South East, but it would have been just so difficult for widows in other parts of the country to find the time and the money to take a trip to London. People just did not travel as, as we do now. Private motor cars, very, very few. Train travel beyond the means of many, certainly a, a trip say, from Scotland to London. Undoubtedly, some women did do it, but I, I, I think that, that it would be very difficult for most women to, to see that as, as a focal point because they would, it would be just as difficult for a lot of widows to visit that grave as it would be to visit their own husband's grave in France, I think, is the answer because it's just not something that, that they would be able to do. It's an important point to consider, really, like you say, the fact that London is the... You know, they they bury them in London because of the fact that they want to pay the respect in the sense that it's Westminster Abbey is the place where kings are buried through generations and they want to sort of adorn the body with, with that same respect. But at the same time, being in the geographical position where London is, like you say, if you're from Scotland or from Northern Ireland or, you know, from other parts of the United Kingdom, not necessarily the easiest place to get to. It's an important thing to, to consider, definitely, definitely. Andrea, absolutely fantastic to chat to you today. Uh, fascinating to explore this this subject, which, like you say, is the you know is a real, really poignant 
area to talk about actually the the loss and the impact of that loss on the the families that were left behind so thanks very much for joining us today and just to mention again your book british widows of the first world war the forgotten legion is available from pen and sword books and we'll look out for your next book as and when that comes out great thank you